Father, thank you. Thank you that your, your word is clear. We've been spoiled with a variety of translations, either, even simple ones down on a child's level. We have no excuses for the purpose of reading and understanding your word. And I remember those days when I first started growing in you and spent a lot of time in the Living Bible. It impacted me greatly. So help us to not give excuses, but to get serious and to dive in, even though we're moving like molasses through this book. It will start picking up, and before we know it, we'll be through it. And uh, we just thank you for it and look forward to what you want to teach us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're looking at the Beatitudes. Kind of an appropriate name. Kind of a positive way to talk about an attitude. But as we look at these, and again, I keep warning you, these are progressive. We have a few people here today who haven't been here for a while. I'm going to repeat. These Beatitudes are progressive. They build upon each other. And also, it's a package deal. They go together. All right? So you think, like they do here, for example, the, the fruits, they call it the fruits of the Spirit. There's only one fruit on the tree that the Spirit puts out. It's singular. It's the fruit of the Spirit. There's nine different facets to it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Those are all the fruit. You don't have love without joy. You don't have peace without patience. You don't have faithfulness without self-control. It's a package deal. They go together. And we need to recognize that because we make excuses sometimes. That somebody took away my joy. They can't take your joy away. It's an impossibility for a believer. The only way it goes away is if you don't walk by the Spirit. When you come back into this package of the Beatitudes, you realize that each one of these goes together. You never stop being whore in spirit. You never stop realizing that you were bankrupt spiritually. That you don't bring anything to impress God with in the process. And so as you look at the passage here, and I kind of want to summarize it again, he talked about being poor in spirit in verse 3. It's a position that we choose. But it's a position of spiritual bankruptcy. Totally destitute before God. There is no boasting. There never will be any boasting. Of anything I did, I came broke. Spiritually broke. So in this case, I would say happy or blessed, which is the idea of what blessed means. Again, I'm taking for granted this is starting to stick. But the idea of being blessed is to be happy or privileged, prosperous, because you've been enriched by God. You are fulfilled. You're very satisfied. It is a state of bliss that becomes because of Jesus Christ. So in this idea of happy, happy, the ones that are poor in spirit are happy because they are helpless. You ever thought of that way? The second one. Blessed or happy are those who mourn. It goes from a position of spiritual bankruptcy to the practice of personal grief in one's life. Personal grief over their sin. You never let sin in without having to just crush you. Remember this word, one of nine in the Greek? Very strong, very um, outgoing. You can't miss it. it. It describes often when someone's lost a loved one. It's that kind of grief, that kind of mourning. That's what God wants in each of us as believers when there is sin in our lives. If it isn't in us, we mourn because there is sin in the lives of those close to us. Or maybe it's because there's sin in America. And we grieve. We don't rejoice over it. We don't make excuses for it. 
But we go from being poor in spirit in our position of spiritual bankruptcy to be those who mourn, practicing personal grief over sin. We display this deep sorrow. Not depression, don't get me wrong. Along the way, I don't know if some people are picking up the wrong idea. This is this deep sorrow. And so instead of, or with the first one being happy or the helpless, now you can say happy or the sad over sin. To kind of help us stick in your head. Then we looked at the third aspect. It was the meek. This is promotion of God over self. You have the ability to do things. You can brag. You can show off. You you can get into positions to impress people with your natural talents, with your political abilities, or your gift of music, or whatever it may be. Those all can happen. But when a person's meek, what their goal is to promote God over self. So they practice this self-control. It's humbly submissive to God is what it's describing. And so I raise up Jesus Christ and I abase or self-abase in everything I do. Not about me. I don't need to be recognized. I don't need to be thanked. I don't need to be appreciated. I don't need to be honored. Why my name get left off the list? It doesn't matter to someone who's me. They're only trying to impress one person. It's God himself. So happy are the helpless. Happy are the sad. Happy are the self-surrendered. Then we looked at those that hunger for righteousness. This is a passion to be right with God. It's to know all about Him. Completely focus on Him. It's an insatiable appetite. It ultimately leads to happy are the holy. That's what I'm after. This is what I look for. This is the one ingredient I look the most for. Well, there's a second one that we'll talk about too today. But I look for this in a person to see if they're really saved. I can't tell what's going on inside as far as their personal bankruptcy. Sometimes you can see it, sometimes you can't. Sometimes people are really honest and up front, other times they're really quiet. It's, it's hard to, to, to realize um, those who mourn because we mourn over a lot of things. And so they have to tell me specifically that it's sin. And maybe sin in their own life is really hurting. And these are the things we've talked about in recent weeks. The weak here, though, are self-surrendered. I can see that more easily. But those who hunger and thirst after righteousness is obvious. And that's what we talked about in 1 John 3.10. The children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. And the marks are, the two he brings up in 1 John 3.10, is love and righteousness. We've watered it down. We've played games with it. We're not even sure what it means anymore. We talked about that last week. And I'm not here to bring guilt trips to you. If you're guilty, do something about it. Don't live there. Don't avoid church. It's not me you have to worry about. It's God. And where are you going to go to get away from Him? For I saw 139. Nowhere. So, as we looked at those, now we come to this fifth one. Blessed are the merciful. This really stands out. And again, he's talking about this blessing where you're approved by God Himself. You please Him. Thus you are a blessing even to yourself because of your choices. It's in the present tense. It's here and now. It's a daily happiness, a daily enjoyment where you are successful, fulfilled, joyful. It has nothing to do with the world, nothing to do with your circumstances. And yet there are so many who profess salvation who have this external form of some kind of happiness that is destroyed when things go wrong. And they give it all up. Because they never knew Him in the first place. But when we come in down to this personal, uh, the way to God in our lifestyle, it's one way, through Jesus Christ. We were spiritual beggars, 
became repentant mourners, surrendered servants, hungry learners, and we develop into generous caregivers. This is what we'll look at today. So when he says, blessed are the merciful, he's trying to zero in on this um, issue that all of us face in our lives. And it really stands out. Let me read a little story for you that kind of illustrates this when we enter into it. Um, an individual, um, Gary Henry, shared this. And he said, one of my favorite stories concerns a man who was bitten by a dog, which was later discovered to be a rabbit. The man was rushed to the hospital where tests revealed that he had, in fact, contracted rabies. Dun, 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 dun. That scary disease. At the time, medical science had no solution for this problem, and his doctor faced the difficult task of informing him that his condition was incurable and terminal. Sir, we will do all we can to make you comfortable, but I cannot give you false hope. There is nothing we can really do. My best advice is that you put your affairs in order as soon as possible. The dying man sank back on his bed in shock. But finally, he rallied enough strength to ask for a pen and some paper. He then set to work with great energy, as much as he had. An hour later, when the doctor returned, the man was still writing vigorously. I'm glad to see that you're working on your will. This ain't no will, Doc. This is a list of people that I'm going to bite before I die. <laughs> that man lacked mercy. Some of us have been there, which is why we lack. There are people that have, and God, I don't want you please speaking up with any name, but there may be somebody in your life who you find out, yes, Terminal on me, terminal on them. They're going with me. I'm taking it to be like me. If you're like that, you've got a problem. You need to look back in your life and say, was I ever poor in spirit? Did I ever mourn? Was I ever meek? Did I ever hunger and thirst after righteousness? Was that ever a part of me? Am I truly a child of God? Because if I come to this one, remember, it's a package deal. And I find out that I really am not merciful toward bad people. And who gets to decide who's bad? I do. They're the ones that hurt me. They're the ones that I know so well that I know where to find them and how to bite them. They'll think I'm coming up like Judas with a kiss. I'm going to get him in the neck. We live that way. What's sad about this in people's lives is it destroys them. They're the ones who suffer with it. But they're the ones who don't realize they don't even know the Lord. The merciful here are those who are clearly marked out by pity. Not on themselves, but on others. They have a genuine sympathy for the people around them. The evidence of a changed heart. These individuals should stand out. That's why you recognize here the ones showing mercy. They are believers who are walking by the Spirit. This is a lifestyle that's, that's common. They don't have a list of people to bite. They have a list of people that they're looking for some way to die for. So as he tries to explain this, it's consistently observable. These are discernible actions. Those consistently demonstrating compassion for others are the ones who are merciful. You can't hide this. In contrast to the day, the Roman Empire was not known for its mercy. Have you figured that out? They executed unwanted, unwanted children at a father's whim. You could be at the birth of your child, and his wife has a girl, and he goes... Whatever emotion you want to put. 
They literally would have taken the baby away from the mother, gone down to the river, and thrown her in. I don't want to go. Let's try it again. They would have typically had mistresses, so they may have had other children as well. But when it came down to this, they have no mercy in that culture. John MacArthur says it this way. A popular Roman philosopher called mercy the disease of the soul. A supreme sign of weakness. They glorified manly courage, strict justice, firm discipline, and above all, absolute power. What does that remind you of today? What do you see around you politically? The Roman world. Absolute power is what people are trying to get a hold of. And so the Constitution, out the window. Laws are for me and not for you. If they're good for me, we use them. If they're not good for me, we get rid of them. This would have been the Roman world. You would have gone before Pilate, or you would have gone before um, one of the Caesars, or you would have gone before whoever was in charge, and they were the law. Now, the Romans had laws for themselves. They couldn't crucify Paul because he was a Roman citizen. They had restrictions on their own, but outsiders, nothing whatsoever. Mercy was the disease of the soul. Anybody who practiced mercy as a Roman was looked down on greatly. And we are entering into that phase in America today. You're going to see more and more desire for bloodshed. Not of their own families, not of people they like, not of their fellow politicians, but of their enemies. And they're going to start doing things more and more and more that you're going to be shocked at until you reach the Colosseums of America. Well, they'll literally bring people in to watch them be executed. What do you think the crucifixions were? They were a public display that anybody could be a part of. Anybody could go out there and crucify some more guys down on the, the, the crossing of the roads out there where everybody can you know, gather and watch. They'd bring their children out. They'd point to them and say, bad, bad people. They mocked them. That is not the life of a believer. You go from this specific individual of the one showing mercy to the merciful. It starts with an attitude. begins in the heart. It's not forced. It's not even a church program. I don't know if you've ever been into getting no answer. But if you've been in a church that we're going to develop mercy in our church. If you've got to develop mercy, you've got to lead a lot of people to Christ. There's something seriously missing. This should be a norm. This should be a, a driving force. It's not on Sundays only. A lot of us are very merciful on Sunday. But don't call me during the week. And worse of all, don't call me in the middle of the night and tell me you're having some crisis that I have to go help with. And you'll start learning who the real believers are. Because they will respond instantly. Someone who is merciful... Is Christ-like, completely changed, selfless. And a key ingredient that stands out to me often, and we'll see it here in, in a few minutes, is they're forgiving. Remember the, the contrast I always put, grace and mercy, two sides of the same coin. What is grace? Okay, getting what you don't deserve. And what's, the, what's mercy? Not getting what you do deserve. Those are the two that I brought up. I know they have other acronyms that, that 
to describe it. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. The, the basic idea behind grace is that it's some kind of a gift. God's grace to us. We've all been shown grace. Believe it or not, you've been shown grace. But mercy is when God steps in and does not give you what you deserve. It's what Christ did on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Is that serious? Roman soldiers who crucified maybe hundreds of people didn't know what they were doing? What was he getting at with that? Here's the Holy One, the one who's sinless, the one who never should have ended up on a cross under anybody's law because he followed the law of love. Part of it was they were ignorant of who he was. This is God's Son you're crucifying. That was part of their ignorance. What was the other part? We would use the phrase today, well, they're just following orders. The person must be really bad because the, the judges found them guilty and sent them here to be executed. And the centurion shows you a little glimmer. But what did it take for the centurion to, to have that glimmer? Three hours of darkness. Okay, three hours of darkness. Earthquake. Earthquake. They didn't know the veil of the temple was split into. There were a variety of things that were going on there. What was the biggest thing Jesus didn't do on the cross? He didn't rail at them. He didn't threaten them. He didn't curse them. That is unbelievable. All the criminals cursed. That was their lifestyle. That's why they were so blatant and sinning. He said nothing. When the centurion standing by him and he hears the phrase, Father, forgive them, because he got hurt a dog. They don't know what they do. It impacted them. Partly in our desire to share the gospel with unbelievers, we're not showing enough mercy. I don't mean we're not being nice or even kind at times. But it's when they spit on us, or they undermine us, or they lie about us, or they get our, our job taken away from us, or whatever other things they may do that are illegal today, it's going to get worse if America doesn't repent. That's when they want something different in us like they saw on Jesus Christ. He had no grudges. He had no resentment. He was not desiring any revenge at that point in time. No hate or bitterness on his part. Mercy, as you look at this word, it's pity. It's sympathy. It's compassion for others. And it's a hard decision. You can't fake mercy. It's so extreme. It's either one thing or the other. You can't kind of be in the middle saying, well, I kind of been merciful. Yeah, doesn't work like that. It's a hard decision. And it's not what we don't do. A lot of people think, well, I showed them mercy. I ignored them. Wrong. I, I'm showing them mercy because I'm avoiding them. Wrong. I'm showing mercy like the priest and the Levite on the, the road where the, the traveler had been beat up and left for dead. You know, they could claim here, I'm being indifferent because I don't want to be unclean. I, I have higher priorities than this. Wrong. What are the two great commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. That's how you can divide the Ten Commandments up. The first four, love God. The last six, Love your neighbor. 
That's why you don't commit adultery with somebody. Because you love them. When you commit adultery, you are being totally selfish. I don't care what this does to them. I don't want to care what it does to their marriage or to their children. I don't care about any of that. I get to do what I want to do and what makes me feel happy. As you struggle in this area, it's not just the heart that's affected by someone who's merciful. It comes out through the hands. It's practical, it's real, it's consistent. But it's helping our enemies, not just the people we like. It's rescuing people that are foolish. They went out on the ice and they, came, they fell in and they're out there drowning. You go, that was a dumb thing to do. Now you want me to risk my life to try to rescue you? I don't have that kind of mercy. It's forgiving the unkind. God set the example. Ephesians 2, 4 to 5, just summarize, but God being rich in mercy, in spite of our sin in the context of the Ephesians 2, God was rich in mercy, abounding in mercy. Luke 6, 36, we get the commandment, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. He's talking to Israel. There's only one way to get there. You've got to have the other ingredients that build up to it in the package deal. You've got to come bankrupt, mourning, meek, hungry for righteousness. Proverbs 11.17 says, The merciful man does himself good, but the cruel man does himself harm. It's to your benefit and my benefit to be merciful. But again, something that stands out to me in all of this is forgiveness. It's pardoning, pardoning the unpardonable. It's releasing a debt that someone has toward me. And so I, brought, I put some passages in here for us to look at, and we'll look at them in just a moment. But he promises here in the verse, they shall now, tomorrow, next week, forever, they shall receive mercy. God blesses those who are truly merciful. And the reason being is because they are truly saved. I hope going through these Beatitudes is helping your eyes to be open to the reality. We have been compromised. We have been talked into believing the lie in America. We're, we're that frog in the beaker and it's slowly turning the temperature up. And we don't even realize what's going on. Because we aren't spending time in God's Word. We aren't spending time in prayer. We aren't spending time dependent on Him and walking in His ways. And it just gets murkier and murkier. And it's hard for us to discern what He really wants. But we think we're religious. We're good. We're right on track. Until we get ratings. Then I want to go bite somebody. This is when we should go back to our knees. And cry out to God. You remember in the Lord's Prayer? We're going to get to that. It'll come up here shortly. Chapter 6, verse 12. He makes a little statement there. He, he tells them, to, the disciples, really the disciples' prayer. But he tells the disciples to pray in this way. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Pretty straightforward. Pretty simple. Anybody owe you anything? Don't answer that question out loud. What if they came to you and said, I can't pay? How are you going to respond? We're going to look at Matthew 18 and talk about that. But he goes on with the Lord's Prayer in verses 14 and 15. He wraps this up and he says, For if you forgive men their transgressions, third class condition, it's possible 
to go either way. But if you forgive men their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And I always thought, when I was a younger believer, I thought, man, that's harsh and that's kind of scary. You know what he's talking about there? If you're truly saved, you are merciful. If you're truly merciful, you forgive others. And as you forgive others, God forgives you because you're demonstrating that you're really one of His. You're not earning anything. You're proving something. This is what He's after. How are we doing in our lives? How's our mercy quotient? How many of us get up in the morning and say, God, let me show mercy to someone today. And, and it's kind of like saying, God, give me patience. And do it right now. But if I were to ask God, help me to become more merciful. Demonstrate where I'm really at in my heart. What would that bring into our lives? You can answer. It's okay. Okay? It may bring tribulation, which is a general term, not the great tribulation. And what was that? It may bring conviction. But what, what's God going to bring in? How, how, what kind of situations is He going to set up for you to have to demonstrate mercy? Okay, now i got three of them. going to bring opportunities to help others. Okay, maybe an opportunity to help others that's inconvenient. Dennis is also going to bring us mercy. We'll, we'll, we'll receive mercy by being merciful. You're right, Jim. It'll bring us situations that we need to be merciful in. Okay, and they will not be easy. No, bring to mind. They'll be hard. That's why he tells us to count all joy when we encounter various trials, because that's what some of those are for. They're stretching us. They're waking us up. They're revealing things in us. So when he gets down here, he gets. I'm going to go to two passages. That's where I'm going to spend a little bit of time. Turn over with me to Matthew 18. Same writer who's recorded the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. And watch what this leads up to. And put yourself into the picture here to see if it makes sense. Matthew 18, 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? How often shall my brother sin against me and I show him mercy? Up to seven times? Woohoo! Pharisees didn't require that either. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. How many is that? Four hundred and ninety times. Is that, a, is that an exact number? You get count, 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 count. Then you, you get to punch them or you get to pay them back or whatever. Or is it a figure of speech just trying to go, who's going to keep track of four hundred and ninety times that you forget a dentist? I think I got a little clip right there. So Oh, it goes both ways. That's, that's good to know. Better be careful. But he, he tried to share with him, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. Remember the kingdom of heaven? We've been talking about that leading up to the Lord's Prayer or to the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. But the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Is that right? Is that okay? It's his money. He's in charge. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a law. One talent was basically about 20 years of work for common laborers. 
10,000 talents? You're solid. Maybe you could work off 20 years, but not 10,000 euros. But since he did not have the means to repay, obviously, it's a story, just telling the story here, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. And the crowd that's sitting there listening goes, that's right. That was a dumb thing to do, to have that kind of debt. That's what the law says. You have to pay it back. And if you don't, he can take everything you want. The slave therefore falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, I or have patience with me, that I will repay you everything. True statement? Impossibility. Is the king going, oh, oh, you mean you can pay this back? Okay, well then we'll work with you. The interest rate might be a little higher, but it may take a little more time. That's not what he's doing here. The king already knows you can't pay that back. And how'd you ever get that much money from me in the first place? But it's just a story. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Why? Because the guy was so good at pleading? Because the king went, oh, oh, if you're going to ask for forgiveness or ask him to be sorry about it, that changes everything. Did the debt all of a sudden disappear? No. Why does the king do that? He showed mercy. It had nothing to do with the slave. And the dead. That's what he's trying to get at. Verse 28, but that slave, after having this great forgiveness, went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. How much is that? A hundred days wages, about three months, a little more. And he seized him and began to choke him. Did the king choke this guy? No. Did he command his, his servants, choke him out? I want to get some blood out of this turnip. He seized him again to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. The debt was real. The law demanded it. He can't pay the debt. And yet, what does he say? So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, does that sound familiar? Have patience with me and I will repay you. I can pay back three months' pay. And verse 30 gives you the heart. He was unwilling, however, and went and threw himself in prison, threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. A forgiven sinner refuses to forgive. What does that tell you about the man? He is not merciful. He is not saved. If I were to make it that simple, that straightforward, this is not how a believer acts. Wouldn't you be blown away if you'd just gone in and having your, you owe $10 trillion on your house loan? You can't even make the next payment, let alone ever pay that back. And you go into the bank and you bow down before them and you cry out to them, please have mercy on me. Forgive, would you forgive me? Well, I didn't even ask for that. Have mercy on me and I will repay. Give me more time, don't throw me in jail. And the bank goes, oh, you're so good at bowing. And you're so sorry. And the bank goes, Mip, go on, pull out your contract, your deed, there's it half, there it is. You can even take the pieces home to show that it's all gone. Student loan, student loan forgiveness rings a bell. Not as a bride. And he was unwilling. 
So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened in verse 31, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Uh-oh. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave. He didn't call him a greedy slave. He didn't even call him an unmerciful slave. He just called him what it was, wicked. I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. You said you asked. And I said, yes. You, should you not also have had mercy, there's the word, on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? The king goes, I knew what I was doing, and I had mercy, and I let it go. What's the answer? No answer. The guy doesn't get on his face again. He doesn't start pleading with him. So, oh yeah, I messed up. If, if you'll forgive me the second time, then I will forgive him and move on. It's his heart that's the problem. So the Lord responds and moved with anger, hands him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. What was owed him? I thought he forgave him of that. Didn't he tear up the contract and release him? What's he getting at here? What was still owed him? Mercy. That's a debt you could never repay. That's a debt that you will owe forever and ever. Because God, in grace, gave us what we did not deserve, and in mercy did not give us what we did deserve. You will never forget the fact that you have been saved, redeemed, taken, given a new body, taken into the presence of Christ, reign with Him forever and ever, and you'll constantly be looking back and going, I don't belong here. I never earned this. This isn't, this isn't mine. It was simply a gift. You'll never get over that. That's why worship will never end. It's not only that God is worthy of all that worship, and that's something you really won't understand we get there. I, we won't understand. But now you have more and more to look back on. This mercy that he has shown to us, along with his grace, has provided our needs. And he throws him into the jail. Turns over to the torturers. And 35 says, So shall my heavenly Father also do to you. Make it a comparison. If each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart, what am I revealing when I don't forgive? That I am not merciful. And ultimately, that I am not saved. Do I have people on the list? My rabies list? Gives a second example as we look at this and realize, and to summarize, I appreciate the king. The king forgave a great debt, but the forgiven would not forgive. His debt was impossible to pay back. It was a hopeless situation. He was bankrupt physically, financially. But the passage here is a focus on the character of the king, not on the servant. The king turns debt into a gift. This is a picture of the gospel. This is what God did for us when he sent his son. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. What I did deserve was judgment. I deserved to go to hell. What do you deserve? But forgiveness is granted. It's not earned. It's not my choice, it's God's. And he's already told us what he's going to do. And so if I look at this first picture, God has been merciful to me, and what do I do with that gift of life? Do I turn around and help others be forgiven? Or do I hold them accountable? 
Do you know what they did to me? I've lived here, we've been here a long time. 30, 36 years in Lepuddle. I know a lot of things about a lot of people. Before my sons were ever in the Sheriff's Department. A lot of things. Mean things. Vindictive things. Shooting the neighbor's dog. A number of those. Murder on the part of some people. All kinds of things that went on. Adultery where some where one husband wanted to go kill somebody. And you went on and on and on. And that's just my 36 years and my limited understanding in the city or the, now the city of Lepon. What is it really like out there? How much of it is unknown to most of us? Most of it. So why do I justify acting like them? One of two reasons. I mean, they're not saved, so I don't have any kind of mercy. I don't recognize that. I'll go choke the living daylights on anybody who mistreats me. Or two, I'm not walking by the Spirit. How long does that last? When your children disobey you, do you give them a month to come around? You just told them not to go play in the street. Cars go by really fast. Don't go out the street with your bicycle. And they look at you, and they look at their bicycle, and they look at the street, they look back at you, and they get on their bicycle, and they ride straight to the street. How do you respond? <laughs> okay, okay, let's start over. Come back in here, come back in here. Off your bike, stay in here, talk to Dad. Do you understand that I don't want you riding your bike in the street? Yep. So you're not going to ride your bike in the street, right? Look at him, look at Dad, look at the street, look at the right. Look back at that, get on the bike, right out in the street. They died. Yeah. <laughs> well, that happens. I've known too many of those that have died because of this speed. Drugs, racing, whatever it may have been. But but you look at the situation and the dad goes, okay, okay, let's, let's pick this up tomorrow. I, I'm tired of interacting with you. You're not getting it today. There must be something wrong. You need a longer nap. Um, maybe you ate the wrong foods. And we give all kinds of excuses and then tomorrow we pick it back up. Dad, daughter, road, bikes. You're in the same conversation. Do you do that over and over and over again? No, you, you wouldn't even think of doing that. And you better not do it more than once. If it's clear they've defied, then it's clear they need discipline. And if they're really, really determined, I take the bicycle, hang it up. If they're really, really determined to where they climb up and they get the bike back, I cut it in half. <laughs> I still tell them don't ride your bicycle in the street and some of those kids will take half and a half and they'll walk out the street and they'll sit there and try to make it work they are so defiant but the issue isn't the kid it isn't even the rebellion it's the fact that how does God treat us if we really are saved he disciplines us he doesn't play around so I watch somebody who's consistently being unmerciful. Or I watch somebody who's cons consistently defying God and, and His mercy, how He keeps being nice to them, being nice to them, being nice to them. And I look at them and I go, He's not your dad. Hebrews 12 tells me that. He only disciplines those that are His own. No discipline, no relationship. And you come up to them and you go, why, why isn't God doing something to you? And I get this a lot from people. They get mad. How come God lets them get away with anything? Because they aren't his children. You think you're getting away with something when you sin? 
It is corrosive. It is destructive. It leads to death. It isn't a good thing, but they're not his children. And God is not stepping in because they don't want anything to do with him. That day will come. So I watch for discipline in the lives of those around me. When I see sin in their life, I'll confront it as a fellow believer, which is my responsibility, as it is yours. But I'm watching to see what God does with it. And forgiveness is something that God gives to all men. Mercy is something we're responsible to give back. Forgiveness, give back. That shows you where you're at. This is the fifth step here. I don't know if I'm making sense, but let's go to one more. Let's look at Luke 10. Same idea, different illustration. Luke chapter 10, verse 30. A little bit of background. In 25, a certain lawyer stood up. Luke 10, 25. And put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? You see how he always asks questions back? You always feel responsible when you're witnessing to people and they ask you a question? Ask them a question back. Your little brain may be saying, I don't know how to answer it. Don't answer it. Ask them a question back. Jesus did it all the time. So he asked them, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Oh, very good, he said to him. You have answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. End of story, right? No. But, wishing to do what? Justify himself. He's looking for excuses. He's looking for the exception clause. He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Question? Luke chapter 10, it's on your paper, on your outline. I said I'm going to give you a little bit of background before I move into verse 30. I did say that, didn't I? Yes. Okay. Sorry, I will repeat more if I have to. I thought I'm repeating, but I know you're just delving into that because you're trying to get to the text. But he's given this background, 25 to 29, and then Jesus replies to this question of his. Who is my neighbor? And he replies and said, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. The implication is, the other half's going to come soon. By chance, a certain priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And all the priests in the crowd are going, yes! I'm clean. We don't deal with that. The guy deserved the, what he got. Who would, who would have tried mind to be traveling out on that road? You justify what they got. I don't have to get involved. It's all their fault. So he goes further. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So they not only passed by, they went across the street, went down the road, went back over and back, heading on the right side. Likewise, this Levite. But a certain Samaritan, the whole crowd goes, ah, bad, bad, bad. Enemy. Don't show mercy to Samaritans. Hate them. They deserve it. He was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. What? What a dumbo. Why would you do that? And came to him and bandaged up his wounds. He's touching him. The man's unclean. 
There's blood. Who knows where this guy's come from? You don't know his pedigree. And he bandages up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He slept in the same room. He ministered to him. It may have been overnight. What's it costing him? Time. What was the Samaritan doing? He just come out on vacation and thought, oh, I have extra days, I can do this. No, it's deviating him from his schedule, from his plans. It's costing him money. He may get sick. He may get something from this guy. Who knows where this guy's been? But he felt compassion. And 30, verse 35, on the next day, he took out two denarii. How much is that? Two days wages. Two days wages. Silver coin. But good for a couple days. What do you make in a couple days? That's how much he took out and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. He gave up like check. It's not enough to give him two days wages. So you make $100 a day, $200 a day. You just handed out a couple hundred, $400 to this guy. And you said, but if it takes more, why would I trust the innkeeper? He's not thinking of himself. He's thinking of the needs of this man. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? What did he just do again? Verse 37. He asked another question. He's putting the pressure on the people that are, in this case, a lawyer that's drilling him, testing him. And he has no choice. In verse 37, he said, the one who showed mercy. He didn't say that Samaritan. He just says, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. You want to know who your neighbor is? Who is it? Anybody who has a need at any time, no matter what it costs, that's your neighbor. That's who you're to love. In America, we've developed this neighborhood. My neighbor's only those who live within a certain distance. Well, when we moved up from our previous state that I don't want to mention because it was a state of confusion, when we came up here, we used to live 15 feet away. Now they're living 10 feet away. You knew everything. You knew all the fights that the neighbors had. You knew when they got something new, you could hear them talking and sharing all, oh, their daughter got a new bicycle. And you're all out in the street riding and playing and doing stuff. You knew everything about everybody. You moved to La Pine, and they put you on these one-acre parcels typically. Now they're going back. They're shrinking it all back up again. Who's my neighbor? Some of them I never even talked to. Some of them don't want to talk to me because I've tried. When we first moved here, as I've shared with you before, we had a neighbor across the street. I went over and tried to meet him, and he wouldn't even talk to me. He acted like I, he was tone deaf, and he didn't even hear me saying a word to him because we both ended up at the mailbox the same day. Kind of a what? Well, that's not a really good greeting, and doesn't say a lot about LeBron. Until one day I met him at the mailbox, and he was stone drunk. That guy talked my legs off. He told me everything I didn't ever want to know. Including that he doesn't like preachers. When he found out I was a preacher, hey, you're out. You're a Samaritan. I will have nothing to do with you. That man didn't live there really long. He moved away. I have no idea what ever happened. But he would have nothing to do with me when he was in the right mind and able to hear the gospel or build a relationship with him of any sort. It is difficult in the climb. We make excuses. 
the first thing that we need to do to be showing mercy to our neighbors. One lot, two lots, three lots away, which is not your neighbor. This can happen anytime, anywhere in your lifestyle. But the first thing I need to do with the ones that I know is pray for them. What does that cost me? Prayer is a matter. Prayer is hard work. I don't know what happens to you when you go to prayer, but oftentimes when I go to prayer, it's almost like, I'm, I'm off on so many topic, my brain just took off. Or at night, I'm, I'm sitting there, I can't sleep, I can't sleep, I can't sleep, I can't sleep, and I start praying, boom, asleep. But if I think about anything else that I'm worried about, wide awake. Prayer is a battle. Satan is not desirous for us to pray. You'll fight us every second of every, every moment that we choose to do that. So when you enter in, you have to picture yourself kind of putting on your armor, Ephesians 6, and entering into a battle to be able to continue at it. But you start, here's what you can do. Remember that room, uh, movie War Room? She started, she made a closet. You don't have to have a closet, but that'd be great. But you start a list, and you put it somewhere, and you start putting names on it of people you want to pray for regularly, and you do and you hang a note on the mirror, which we've had too many on lately, to remind us of things. Have you prayed? And then every few days, you move it. You just put it on there with scotch tape, and you move it to a different spot on the mirror. Or you put it in a different part of the bed. But you start doing things that are going to motivate, if you're having trouble remembering. But this is critical. If I really want to show mercy, this is what was lacking in this individual. The priest who was a man of God, who took the sacrifices in and offered them to God. He served the people before God. The Levites did the reverse. They served the priests. They served the people by setting up, turning down the tabernacle, and taking care of all of the stuff, the support for the priests. Who should have known them? Them. Who did they hate and have no mercy for whatsoever? Samaritans. People you want to bite in the neck. Outcasts, half-breeds whatever terms they want to come up with. My challenge for you today as we close this off is to take this information and go make a list. And don't just list the people that you want to bite. You're not trying to bite them anymore. Don't list that. And if you do make a list like that, do not hang it up. Don't hang up enemies list with kind of a bullseye on there or something like that. But whatever you can do to make sure that you're remembering is start praying for those people. <laughs> Have mercy on them. Forgive them their debt, even if they're not asking. That's what forgiveness is. A fee is to release the debt. Some of the debts they've done to us, some of the, the things they owe us can never be repaid. They are multiple thousands of talents. They can't go back and fix it. I can forgive them. And you say, well, only if they ask. Right? What was the example of loving your neighbor? What was the example of showing mercy? It was the man who couldn't even respond on the road. The man who didn't say, oh, you're a Samaritan, don't touch me. What do you think he did later when he found out? Who brought you in here? Oh, a Samaritan. The Bible didn't call him a good Samaritan. That's what we call him. Good Samaritan to the, to the Jews was an oxymoron. There was no such thing as a good Samaritan. They would go north out of Judea and go east, cross over the Jordan River and go up further and come back in in Galilee because they didn't want to go through Samaria. Where does Jesus go to? Samaria. Samaria. Who does he talk to? 
one of the elite leaders of Samaria that was a righteous man? No. He goes to one of the women that even the women had passed out because she was so unholy. He meets her at the well. He sends the disciples away to go get some food so that he can have a conversation with her. And if you go back to John 4, she is blown away. What is this? You're a Jew. You're talking to me, a Samaritan. I'm here in the middle of the day because I can't get water when it's cool because the women won't let me. I've had five husbands and the one I'm living with now that Jesus acknowledges tells him that I am a at least a fornicator, prostitute, adulterer, depending on who she interacted with. And it reminds me of John 8 when he says, you were without sin, cast the first stone. I don't preach this as being one high and mighty. I've kept short lists. I have people that have hurt me really very bad. I can still show you where they planted the night multiple times. My responsibility was to love them. One gentleman that did that to me on a regular basis years ago went out of his way in public to shake my hand three times. And I had a choice every single time. What was he trying to say to the people around us? Oh, I like this guy. What was he doing behind the scene? I had a choice to make. What did I do? Shake his hand. Pray for him. Felt sorry for him. This is the responsibility, but my biggest concern as we close this is if you have no mercy, then you don't have Jesus. It's a part of this package deal. It's a progressive step that shows up in the life of a genuine believer. You've never been spiritually bankrupt. You've never admitted to God, I can't do it on my own. If you don't save me, I'm going to be lost. Never got there. And then when you, when you finally admitted that, you weren't sorry for your sins. You go, well, yeah, now that I'm saved, I can breathe again. I'm on the beach. And they brought me up. and It wasn't so bad. No, the currents were, they were kind of dying down out there where I was drowning. And, and I knew I needed to swim sideways when there's a riptide and, and come back in if you've grown up anywhere near the coast. Yeah, I knew all those things. I just was having a little bit of struggle that day. They didn't really need to rescue me. So I'm not really sorry for what I did when they all told me, don't swim out there. So I'm not me. I come across with, I'm in charge. I'm in control. And on it, it becomes more and more obvious. I don't search after righteousness. It's not what I wake up to with my eyeballs looking and say, God, make me more righteous today. Help me to please you. Help me to practice what you want. Not to be a law keeper and impress people. But to be a commandment follower. To impress you. Because I want to please you. I want you to be happy. And I know that's where the blessing comes from. That the world's so eager to find in many other ways. And it doesn't satisfy. So if you don't know Christ today, you, you may look at it and go, well, I don't have, I have no mercy. I can just have a list of people I want to fight. Then you need to start with Jesus. You can't fix that until you've gotten right with the Lord. Very simple. Free. It's a free gift. It's eternal. Have I told you that? You can't lose it. It's in God's hand. If you know him today, show the mercy. If you don't know him today, come to know Jesus. I would love to help. Let's pray. Father, we need you to work in our lives.
we, we think that we've arrived many times as believers and we can pick and choose what we're going to eat out of your word or when we're even going to open it. We don't put you first. And worse off, we don't put ourselves last. Lord, if we want to be like the Good Samaritan, when there's a need around us that we respond, even at our own risk, even one time I think, thinking back, as it comes to my mind of a person that was in a burning car and they couldn't get the seatbelt off. It's a hard decision to make when everybody's screaming it's going to blow up. Most of the time you're not asking us to do that. But you are asking us to stop biting our enemy. So help us today to get rid of that list by praying for them and looking for ways to love them and to show mercy to them. Maybe write them a card. So many things, Father. We, we need you to help us to know how to do this. We're not taught this in our world. And sometimes we're not even taught this in the church. But maybe we look like Jesus, especially to those who most desperately need you. Thank you for what you'll do.